Hey, welcome back. That might be the new theme song for the Otis Brown podcast. Uh, let me know what you think about it. I had Wonderful World in the last podcast, and Mrs. Podcast seemed to think I played all over it, like I was at some bowling shirt blues jam at the Holiday Inn. And uh, maybe I did. That was just a, a plug-in for the guitar, and it was kind of not too clean so i just played that chord melody thing that i just wrote into the microphone so i hope that's uh elegant enough for my lovely wife what's going on everybody you know uh as we move into the summer and i start thinking about music again i am drawn to this new and really amazing film that's on Hulu right now. It's called Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. Turns out there was a cultural festival in 1969 in the summer in Harlem, in Mount Morris Park. It's now Marcus Garvey Park, you know. Uh, there were 50 hours of footage of this, but it was uh, never aired, never produced, never turned into a film until now. And it, uh, it, uh, featured some of the the best musicians of the time. B.B. King, Nina Simone, you know. The Fifth Dimension, they were interesting. Stevie Wonder, Mahalia Jackson. I mean, it had everything from, you know, from uh, gospel music to uh, avant-garde jazz, African drum music, you name it. I'm here to tell you it's beautiful. It was made by Amir Thompson, you know, Questlove, you know, who you might know from uh, as the leader of the Roots, the drummer and band leader of the Roots, uh, also known right now as the band for Jimmy Fallon's late night show. I sometimes watch Jimmy Fallon just so I can listen to that band. They're cool. Anyway, he does a really remarkable job of putting together this film out of, out of you know, just hours and hours of original footage, plus interviews uh, with people who attended and performed there. Uh, you know, famous people like Mavis Staples, but also just, you know, ordinary people who were kids and got to go to the festival. My experience watching it is I just keep saying to myself, how can I not know about this? One of the first really cool performances is by Stevie Wonder, um, who lays down a really outstanding drum solo, which, you know, obviously appeals to Quest as a drummer. It's not just that Stevie Wonder is blind, you know, which is, I, I mean, which, which is amazing enough. You know, like, how do you know exactly where you're hitting on that kit? I can understand... Uh, a guitar or a piano becoming less visual for a musician, but a drum kit, it's not always set up exactly the same. I'm sure that he, you know, sound checked it, but it's it's remarkable independent of his, you know, lack of earthly vision. But what's really striking to me about it, and, and Chris Rock actually is one of the great interviews on this thing, and he points this out. You know, Stevie Wonder's already been famous. He's been a, a child prodigy, and he could stay famous in the same way that he'd been famous, but he's about to go into his 70s famous, you know, music of my mind, talking book, 
songs in the key of life and that stuff was truly amazing he went from being famous to being i i don't know what <laughs> to truly uh producing some of the the most innovative and important music of of uh, the time he lived and we see uh we see him in in the Harlem Cultural Festival i think kind of making a statement that he's about to change and about to do that sort of thing and he's not the only great performer there i mean it is just a it is a showcase of black excellence um and an interesting counterpart to woodstock that happened at the same time and hal tolchin the the guy who photographed it um or the guy who, who uh you know set up filming it a, a director a producer uh you know tried to uh, shop it as the Black Woodstock. Sort of uh, capitalize on the success of Michael Waldley's film, Woodstock, that became really, uh, you know, famous. I mean, it's an, it's an amazing and important cultural document, and people, uh, you know, have formed their impressions of the 60s from that film, from that point since. And I can understand why you would market it as a Black Woodstock. It, it, it's a sort of mirror of Woodstock in a way, which is to say that at Woodstock, you see, uh, you know, a sea of white faces punctuated by a few black faces. And, uh, you know, in the Summer of Soul, you see a sea of black faces punctuated by some white faces. Of course, there are integrated bands at both. And there were bands that played at both, or, or at least Sly and the Family Stone uh, played at both. And Sly Stone's band was the most integrated band probably in the world at that time. I mean, so many different... Uh, expressions of blackness, different expressions of whiteness, different gender expressions, different fashion expressions, all going on in his band at the same time. And uh, in addition to an amazing combination of, uh, you know, diverse musical styles. Another point of contrast that I think is interesting is that, you know, Woodstock was an explicitly countercultural uh, event, you know. It was, this was the counterculture. This was a different culture than other white folks were participating in at the time. But the Harlem Cultural Festival, I think, was uh, about being representative of black culture. At least that is to say, again, there's a tremendous range. Everyone at Woodstock more or less looks the same. Kind of like a music festival now. You know, people are kind of the same. But uh, at, the, at the Harlem Cultural Festival, as, as you know, reflected in, in Summer of Soul, there's everything from the fifth dimension who talk about, um, you know, how everyone thought they were white, you know, up, up, and away in my beautiful balloon, age of Aquarius. I can, I can see why people might have thought that. Two people like, you know, Mahalia Jackson and Pop Staples, who were, you know, probably you know, the gold standard of blackness, I guess. And and again, there's an amazing diversity in the, the audience and the way individual audience members, uh, you know, choose to represent themselves. It somewhat maps on to uh, the performers on stage, but it's much more expansive than that, actually. We see people walking around dressed in 
dashikis and you know other uh, you know African traditional and tribal dress sometimes. <clears throat> we see beautiful women in elegant dresses. We see you know uh, clean cut sharp guys in in suits. We see people who look like they walked out of office jobs or walked out of church or you know walked out of uh, the pages of fancy magazines or out of a village in Africa. I mean it's just a a beautiful array and expression of of diversity and of, of fashion options and possibilities I guess and it's it's fascinating. The other thing we see, I know you see some children at Woodstock, and, and I think mostly from my point of view, I'm like, ooh, I hope someone's watching out for them, <laughs> frankly. But in Summer and Soul, we see all these beautiful children, and again, like ranging in dress from like these cute little guys wearing, you know, suits with hats, little girls in their Sunday dresses to, you know, kids running around in robes and stuff and it's just a, just the I guess I just want to say like the the range of fashion choices that are uh, available to people and represented by people in 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 basically one neighborhood I know people you know probably came from far and wide to go to this thing but like you know there were all kinds of ways to be a black American in 1969, at least in Harlem. And, and that's kind of amazing to me. And it seemed like there were, uh, you know, as, as before, <laughs> kind of two ways to be a white American. You could be a, a hippie or a square, I guess, you know. Didn't seem like there was much room in between. It was very narrow. So showcasing that uh, diversity in the black community is an important part of the visual rhetoric of the film. Uh, and it's it's wonderful to see. And then to think about those kids, you know, the film is also, uh, I think, an important expression of black family. We see a bunch of happy, uh, you know, well taken care of loved kids. And, you know, it, it's interesting because the the beginning, like when Stevie Wonder's playing his drum solo, they're cutting back and forth, um, you know, to some of the kind of stuff that you uh, might expect to see from Black America in the 60s, which is to say, you know, some shots of the Black Panthers, some Black Power chants, some conversation, uh, discussion about uh, the assassination of, of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Bobby and, and, and John Kennedy. Um, and that kind of, you know, Turmoil. There's also some conversation about Harlem being, uh, you know, uh, in the grips of a sort of drug epidemic. But in the middle of that, I mean, you know, like, like that, that, that's all pretty familiar. I mean, that, that's the story of Harlem in 1969. That's what we see all the time, right? So that, in a way, what was interesting about showing that footage, because I'd seen so much of it before, it kind of disappeared into the background. And what stood up, out from that was the beauty uh, of the community, the strength of the community, and uh, and the the obvious, uh, you know, uh, pride in the community. You know, I think that we have a really mistaken idea in this country about um, communities that are going through, you know, 
upheaval of various kinds. You know, you know, Harlem had had riots before that, and it had had uh, a drug problem, and it had turmoil. But you know, that doesn't mean that 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 news, you know, making headline making, uh, you know, uh, events are definitive of the community. You know, we've got these stereotypes about particularly black communities, but I guess maybe about poor communities in general. But, you know, like like we think of South Central Los Angeles in the, in the late 80s, you know, and it's like, oh, we see tanks driving into crack houses. Well, you know, I'm sure there were people, uh, you know, in string quartets <laughs> rehearsing and people in art clubs painting and all of the other things you do. People in a bad neighborhood don't want to leave it. They want the neighborhood to get better. They want the bad stuff to leave, and there's still a lot of good stuff there, you know? House next door to mine turned into a drug house when I first moved here, and yeah, it was bad. I mean, it was bad. You know, I won't go into details, but but like, you know, if you heard about it, you're like, why don't you leave there? I'm like, I don't want to leave here. I want them to leave. And, and you know, fortunately, we had, a, we had a kind of neighborhood where we were able to make that happen. So when I see how beautiful and cohesive and functional the community is, at least as represented by this film, you know, representation is everything, you know, but it's like it's, it's just such a striking counter narrative to the one that we were bombarded by thinking about Harlem or other, you know, uh, urban black neighborhoods in in uh, the tumultuous times of the civil rights era and particularly the mid to late 1960s. You know, I just can't help but having a deep sense of, of loss and regret. You know, if white Americans like me had been presented with this as a counter-narrative to... Uh, you know, cities burning. Um, and if black Americans had this as a counter-narrative to that and, and, and you know, a, a model of excellence to, uh, to look toward, I, I think we'd have a better world right now, frankly. You know, we can't admire what we can't see. And, you know, even though 300,000 people saw parts of the Harlem Cultural Festival themselves, they were people without the power to bring that to a larger audience. Tony Lawrence, the guy who organized it, had a tremendous amount of power in the entertainment industry with musicians, even with, uh, you know, John Lindsay, the mayor. He was able to pull this whole thing together, but that's a whole different thing than getting it on television and getting it into the world where the larger world can see it. And, you know, I, if, if we erase that experience, then we erase the potential good it does. Uh, that's why I'm so concerned with cultural erasure on the podcast. That's why I'm so concerned with, uh, you know, attempting to make things visible that are, or helping to make things visible um, that are invisible. Obviously, uh, Questlove, uh, deserves a you know deserves a tremendous amount of credit here, as well as the people who documented it to begin with and and tried to make it go. Well, you know, Questlove uh, he grew up in a musical culture. His dad was a band leader and a, and a performing musician, and uh, you know now he's kind of a he's on TV. He's kind of a media superstar, and he was able to use uh, you know some of his name recognition and prestige to leverage this thing into uh, into. Uh, a space where we can see it, you know, and also 
you know, uh, emerging platforms like Hulu that it's on uh, will take a risk on something like this where back in the network days it just wasn't going to happen. They didn't think it would appeal to more than the 10 to 12 percent of us who were black at the time or the, you know, whatever percentage they figured uh, of other people would care about it. But, you know, I mean, this thing was nearly completely erased. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, Questlove didn't know any more about this than I did, which is to say nothing. And that's uh, surprising in one way, but not surprising in another way. How are you going to find it if it's sitting in a vault somewhere? He heard about this and he's like, whoa, whoa, how could I not know about this? I thought I had studied the American music of the generation before him, you know, and, and uh, you can't know what you can't see. If this is hidden in some way. It didn't happen except for the people who were there. There's an interesting film from uh, 2006 called Walkout, and uh, it's about a, a group of student activists, uh, Latino student activists in, uh, uh, in Los Angeles, and, you know, they're protesting things at school like, uh, uh, you know, uh, janitorial punishment where they force the kids to, to hang out with janitors and give them a lesson in this would be your terrible life if you don't get right in school, which is humiliating, of course, not just to the students, but also to the hardworking janitors who are uh, making a middle-class living and probably having a decent life, doing a respectable job. Um, they also were not allowed to speak Spanish in school. Anyway, there were, there were other things. And they, they staged a walkout from five uh, East Los Angeles schools and there's a scene where they talk to the Edward James Almost character. In Walkout, he plays Julian Nava, who was the first Mexican-American to be voted to the Los Angeles uh, you know, school board. And uh, the students stage their first walkout, and they walk out and they have their protest. And it just kind of fizzles out. They get kind of rounded up, and they go away. And there's no news coverage. And he tells them... If it's not on the news, it didn't happen. You know, you have to do it again. It doesn't matter if you feel the satisfaction of, of uh, organizing this action if uh, no one sees it, it didn't happen. And so, like, in some ways, that's the, what, what became of the, of the Harlem Cultural Festival. It, it happened, but only the people who remembered it remembered it. It didn't have the opportunity to become a touchstone moment in American culture because we couldn't see it. And I want to tell you, uh, I think I know a lot about American history and American culture as a, as a literary critic who has a very, you know, historically focused sensibility. And I think I know a lot about the diversity of the, of the black experience. I, I, it's, it's part of, it, it's an area of my work. Um, but I didn't know anything about this film, and it may have allowed me to see the world in a lot different way earlier in life had this been a part of the narrative. And I'm, I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for Questlove for making this happen and using his, his influence, his popularity, whatever you want to call it, uh, to make this film happen. And I think that every American should watch it. I think it's going to change your mind about the time and place probably, and I think that it might just fill you with pride that such a beautiful thing happened and now we can see it. So uh, 
If you get a chance, check it out, all right? And I hope you like the new theme song. Thanks again for indulging me on that.